You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. This episode is different than many of our others. Jointly produced with West Point Center for Oral History, this episode features the story of Major Nakib Mirzadeh, a former Afghan National Army Special Forces officer and a West Point graduate. In August of 2021, Nakib and his family fled the Taliban after the collapse of the Afghan National Government and the seizure of Kabul. It wasn't the first time he had to flee their rule. As a young boy in the 1990s, his family fled to Iran after the Taliban seized power. A lifetime of service to the cause of Afghan freedom and the Afghan people followed, including spending four years at the United States Military Academy, graduating in 2017. After graduating from West Point, Nakib attended the Infantry Basic Officer Leadership Course and Ranger School before returning to Afghanistan for service in the Afghan National Army. Nakib received some fame when his full dress gray jacket was found at the Hamid Karzai International Airport by a U.S. soldier and passed along to a fellow West Point graduate who eventually reunited Nakib with his cadet uniform. Listeners will note that the audio quality on this episode is different than many of our others due to the nature of the equipment that we used. Despite this difference, we think Nakib's tale is one that must be shared with our listeners. War does not happen in a vacuum, and as the tragedy in Kabul and recent fighting in Ukraine reveal, the human factors of war go beyond friction, hunger, cold, and fear. They encompass the lives, hopes, and dreams of those caught up in the fighting, both in and out of uniform. Nakib's full interview will be available on the Center for Oral History's website in the coming weeks. This podcast starts approximately an hour into his interview, and thus much of his background prior to the fall of Afghanistan has been omitted. And uh, so uh, to give you an example, uh, in seven months of um, uh, 2021, so mm -hmm. in, in, in August, Kabul fell, just before that in seven months. In seven months, uh, like my jog, uh, we recorded 18,000 Taliban attacks in seven months. That's like level of violence, 18,000 attacks. And we responded um, around like 9,000 of them 9,000 attacks, so, so they attacked, we call it initial, enemy initial attacks, and we responded like uh, with 2,100 Afghan airstrike, and we responded, uh, defended checkpoints with 437 US airstrikes in support of the Afghan checkpoints, mm -hmm. not offensive missions. And we also uh, deployed uh, 7,000 7, times 
uh, Afghan uh, command special forces to respond to Taliban attacks. And at the end of the day, in seven months, uh, we also lost 7,400 Afghan security forces. And this was highest in given any years uh, mm-hmm. previously. And we lost like, just like six, over 600 Afghan commander special forces in these missions. And, um, uh, and, and that shows the level of violence that uh, we had in 2021. So again, like from an Afghan perspective, we are fighting based on the realities and we were sustaining casualties. We had logistical difficulties. Uh, we had uh, our our politicians, our civilian leadership massively divided over realities and, and where they can compromise on the policies and uh, and, and also most Afghan uh, politicians, Afghan civilian leadership believed that, uh, that they had been betrayed and the, and the U.S. Is, uh, made a deal to give the power to the Taliban and uh, without election. So just like, um, so that, so many things uh, happened and there was a distance, distrust and, uh, in civilian leadership in public between the Afghan Commander Special Forces, ANA, with the U.S. partnership. So, and, 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 and it was a series of events that happened in this uh, time period. I want to say the beginning of the collapse and the failures exactly started on, the, on February 2020. Uh, when the negotiation deal happened, which followed with prison release and then like rules of engagement and all these things. And then when Kabul fell in 2015, so it was uh, still unexpected because we brought in the Afghan Commander Special Forces um, from different parts of Afghanistan uh, to, dist- uh, to provincial centers and we brought them to Kabul to defend the Kabul. And we, we still had the willingness to defend the Kabul but something caught everyone uh, with surprise when the Afghanistan president uh, and his national security team, uh, un- like they decide that uh, by themselves to leave Afghanistan, and that left Afghan and myself since I, like my last mission, as I mentioned, I was taking the project, the transition uh, piece. So we, we were we were like left with no leadership, and the Afghan generals and Afghan uh, like armed forces commanders uh, basically did not claim any like military rules on that day. And my boss, General Sami Sadat, he spoke to on the same day on August 15 to a U.S. Uh, U.S. commanding general that he's willing to defend the Kabul, but he was told uh, he he quoted himself. Uh, he spoke to Afghan uh, news agency that um, the final meeting was that uh, uh, that my boss was told that uh, there is no government in Afghanistan and we have no reason to fight. And following that, my boss, uh, following that meeting on the August 15th evening, he messaged me um, that uh, we need to close our job so we are evacuating, so we're leaving Afghanistan. When that message came in, what went through your head? Um, it was very difficult. So one, I was talking, I was still talking to my U.S. partner, 
uh, over the horizon remotely. So providing situation awareness. So I find myself so much like um, disappointed because our job previously we were talking about like we were looking for Taliban in far away districts in watching in intelligence and looking for days to find them. But in August 15, like I'm reporting Taliban positions like just outside Kabul airport, like PD-15, PD-10 is like just, just outside Ichkaya. So that day was very difficult because Taliban are entering Kabul city and, and there's nothing that anyone does in terms of like, um, like, like a government, uh, or the U.S. or international, like, we need to defend Kabul, we need to stop this, this shouldn't happen. And to me, it was very disappointing. And when my boss messaged that, and then my, also my U.S. partner, the U.S. embassy, he also messaged me and asked me that uh, I need to bring my family uh, to the airport because uh, we will be evacuated. And I sat behind my desk, I was in my uniform, and I told myself, like, this is it. So I worked so hard. I went to like West Point, like Ranger School. I went to all these trainings. I did like these so many missions. I literally sacrificed all my time. Like I took away my family time, my personal time. I never took a leave. And, um, and I had like my best friend, like we were four mobile targeting team, like task force. Like I lost two of my teams, one in Kandahar, one in, in Faryab and best friends, like, great officers with so many talent educations like one of them was um Sorab Azimi he was an Ibolic US staff college graduate he graduated Turkish Academy and um, he was such an amazing officer so we we lost him in these missions and we always thought that these missions take sacrifices and we were all ready to make those sacrifices but August 15 from our own leadership and from our own partner they're telling us this is the end of the mission and we need to evacuate it. And to me, it was that was the saddest moment because I sat behind my desk. I pulled out my pistol that I had. I was carrying with me. I, I put on the table. I told myself like this is basically an end of like lifelong dream and, and the goals that I had. And I I told myself like whatever I wanted to do, and this is um, this is it. This is the end of it. And, um, but I, I, the only thing that came to my mind was like, okay, so like, what's next and what's important to me? And that was my family. So I, I didn't stop because my boss meant so I can wait for him to go with him to the airport. But I say like, no, like I will not do that. If I'm not taking my family out, there is no reason for me, uh, by myself. So I was a selling uniform. Uh, I had a, uh, car I drove outside I went the opposite uh, so my HQ was adjacent to Kabul airport very near and my house was only 20 minutes uh, around that away from the where I was working so I called my family I told them like 40 minutes get ready someone else is gonna pick you guys up or I will be coming uh, they were not ready they still had their dinner ready and um, I drove I drove home and um, I told them like to pack enough, but they had like two big suitcases. And so I, I put them all um, in my car and we all 
And my wife asked me if she can go and say goodbye to her parents. I said, like, we don't have time, like, because we closed our entrance gate and I had a guard to just wait for my car because when I'm showing up, because we closed the gate to anyone and uh, and I'm, I told them I'll come back with my family. So on my way, I also picked up uh, another friend, a West Point graduate named Shabir Kabiri. Uh, he was also... Uh, uh, contacted by U.S. Uh, uh, friends and um, LGA, like West Point graduates, and um, uh, about evacuation. So I linked up. So uh, he followed me to my workplace adjacent to Echkaya. Uh, so we went through the gate, uh, then I, uh, and then we showed up to the airport, and that was like a chaos, and we couldn't evacuate that night because it was like. Uh, gun gunshots everywhere like skies were like tracers flying all over the places and city is panicking uh, um, there are diplomats there are politicians there are afghan uh li- i want to say lifetime taliban enemies that are panicking what's gonna happen to them and they're rushing to the airport so so that night in august 15th um uh, we could not board it, uh, an aircraft. So I spent until like two o'clock with my family walking around. Then I had to go change my uniform to put the civilian and, um, and then waited for the next day. And the next day was basically when I want to say the world, the West and the media learned that Afghanistan fell. But we knew the process and the events like way months ago. What was it like taking the uniform off for the last time? Uh, it was a very emotional moment. So to me, a uniform was a pride. And to the point that uh, my mom would tell me that I am sometimes very like ignorant, that I know how target killings are very popular in Kabul, but I still go with my uniform. And the reason I was doing that, I was telling my mom and my family and my friends because not only I'm taking pride and I should not be the one in uniform fearing death or fearing the Taliban. If I me walking somewhere, it should be them fearing. It should be them to uh, leave the place, not us. And I was actually promoting this. But that moment, um, so like just taking off the uniform was uh, very emotional to me. Again, like sitting behind my desk and then like two o'clock when I took off my uniform, uh, that was very emotional and that was like something that um, a, a painful emotional kind of uh, remained with me. What were your first 12 hours at HKIA like? Uh, one, I was very grateful that so many people from West Point graduates, West Point, LGL, people like made connections in DC and I knew they reached out to me and it was amazing because uh, I wasn't expecting that to be honest I thought this is like the chaos and the crisis and this is the very difficult time for me Uh, the only thing is that how I can take my family to safety and I find myself helpless and now I'm having these so many phone calls, messages. Like I have a friends, like she messaged that her parents welcomed me to his to her house in California. 
like Awalam and in, in Kabul airport in, in that chaotic scene. And in the same time, I'm, I'm very uncertain because the way that I see the chaotic scene, like one thing, because I was the one reported that Taliban are outside uh, Echkaya that day, like around like one o'clock, and I knew it. And But the Taliban are saying that they are not in the city yet. But, but we know that they are in the city. And one thing that behind my, my, my head is like, Okay, so we are waiting in the terminal, and that's the U.S. in front of us in tarmac, and those are the aircrafts. And these are us, and there is no one behind us. And the Taliban are right just outside the gate. What happens? What if they just walk in and shoot at everyone? So they're just like a terrorist group, and they can do anything, and I don't want to go and ask them. And I was very concerned in that 12 hours about two things that this chaos we would get lost in the crowd and number two behind us there is no security parameter and so i was like concerned that night and the sunrise I, I didn't sleep i walked out the first thing i saw taliban walked into the airport that day that morning and they used that opportunity and so what they did um, came to the entrance gate but they could not or they didn't Past the TSA checkpoints, so we had like a TSA check like security. So they did not cross that. We were just across that, and we could still see them outside that. And they didn't do it. They didn't come. And I thought maybe because they know that there's U.S. Marines lined up in front of us outside, so they don't want to make eyes uh, eye contact with them. Uh, but what I learned that uh, they are actually creating wave of crowd at the entrance gate, the main entrance. And then they would stop and release the crowd. So the crowd would run into the airport and all the way to the tarmac in front of the aircraft. And then they would stop the crowd and create a second wave and then they would march them. Uh, and that basically failed the mission, evacuation mission on August 16th. And that's when you saw on, uh, on the news how people were falling off aircrafts because no one knew like Taliban next with the crowd and uh, so th this was this was very difficult to me and and, and for safety of my family uh, because uh, in suitcases I had my uniforms I had my uh, full dress and I had my army uniforms and I had my weapon with me on me and I had my documents like all these things like and uh, with me and I said like. If they check our bags and if we have these like everything, there is evidence and what can we do? Uh, but I was holding my breath. Hopefully they are not passing the TSA. But around like noon, noon, one o'clock, they passed the TSA. They came to cross the TSA and they kicked out the crowd to go in the open. And the open was very hot. That day was, this is like August, it's very hot outside. So I took my family outside and um, in the sun. And um, and they they basically came close uh, inside the building, and um, and and just like looking to the crowd, I'm 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 convinced enough to tell myself that we need to give up, because there is no way in this crowd in this chaos scene we can get evacuated. Were you part of the wave on the 16th that crossed the tarmac? Uh, not the first ones, because since we were there the night before. And I knew that we had to wait. There has to be a process and, and the steps. 
and uh, but the wave was coming from the outside the Taliban was releasing them so they were creating this chaos but the US uh, uh, evacuation team would take an hour and a half to push that crowd to bring them where we were and the second wave would go and they would take the whole time again to push back this crowd and this was happening all the way to uh, like 4 or 5 o'clock p.m. But in around like 5, 4 o'clock p.m., I told Moshavir, uh, another West Point uh, graduate, that we need to go like, close to the tarmac. We need to find someone, an army, someone to tell them that we have a point of contact. We were told that we need to be here. And this is our digit. Someone is expecting us uh, in the control center outside. We just need to communicate with them. So it's someone that... But we were talking to our point of contact in the U.S. and they are talking to the control center but uh, we are not connected and as i was walking to shabir and then like uh uh my wife called me and she's crying because i had him to stay like in a, in a corner of building in a shade and then like the taliban came to them and he started like, shooting at them but not like targeting uh, their body but like basically shooting at the wall in front of them making dust and then shooting in front of them and my wife is young and my sister's uh, never seen, been that close to a, like a Talib fighter and facing that level of violence, like pointing a gun at them and then like shooting in a close distance. And she's crying and I told Shabita, I can't go, I need to go back get my family. So I went back and uh, I brought them with me to the tarmac, like close to the tarmac. And I, I, I told them that this is safe they're not gonna be around and as I'm here and we went walk to the tarmac and then this is like when the Taliban also came to the tarmac they mixed with the crowd and at some point um, and uh, I had to give up on one of my backpack so one of my backpack was green with my name tape and it was like a commando issued backpack and I had my uniform. So I, I put out, I took out my, some of my uniform. I kind of took what I needed and I kind of left my backpack in the middle of like, uh, like grasses, like, like uh, in the open. And I also left my other two suitcases, uh, like way back in the, where the waiting area is, outside the um, gates. I took my family to the tarmac to answer your question yes we went to the tarmac but this is like almost getting dark and uh, and this was a very sad moment because uh, we were learning that the evacuation stopped that day because of the chaos so what the course of action that i learned is the taliban and the u.s talked so now the taliban would come to the tarmac in front they will line up in front of the marine across the tarmac and they will push the crowd completely outside the Chikaya. So when I, when I noticed that uh, scene that like basically Taliban passed when in front of the Marine and then they start shooting in front of people, shooting like over and like lashing people, kicking people, like not listening to anyone. So basically I thought this is like basically not going to happen. And... Um, and uh, we were told that we need to go come back from the go outside and come back from the north gate 
And I was telling like, I'm already in the airport. There's no reason me going out and coming back from the North Gate. And I told them the, because going out risk, uh, is the Taliban have checkpoints at each station as you go out to the Shikaya. But when the crowd was pushing out and I thought this is probably the time if we go out because now the whole crowd, like thousands are leaving the airport and we march out with the, with the crowd. Even the Taliban searched, but we left so much clothes, so much of our stuff behind at the Chikaya. Uh, and I still kept my pistol and my backpack. And we walked, they searched in three locations, but they were, were carrying us another thing, like a, a sizable suitcase. And um, um, they were just like, like not uh, actively looking at anything, because it was just a storm of waves coming, going out. They're just like stopping everyone, like turning lights and open what you were carrying in your hand. But we left the Chikaya. So we left uh, on the 16th August uh, around evening and went back home. And then our point of contact said that uh, we need to come back tomorrow morning from the North Gate. And that's, uh, we went back home and then I took my wife to her parents to say goodbye. Then I came back and I went to my friend's house. And the next morning on August uh, 17th, uh, we showed up to the North Gate. And that was whole difficult uh, because uh, the entrance gate was uh, the aisle, like a spinning aisle, so uh, one person could go. And probably the distance between me and the gate was like uh, 12 meters, but it was packed with people like U.S. citizens, mm -hmm. uh, U.S. green card holders with the passports in their hands. And people like us were told to be there. And everyone packed and the gate is not open no one is crossing and when we reached out to our point of contact uh, and then he came behind the fence we found a way to uh, wave at them and then like say like we're going to use a ring or we're going to uh, to kind of distinguish ourselves from the crowd but we told him like this crowd is like not moving and he told us if you t if you can take an inch a step take an inch at a time and this is the only way, there is no way back. And we told them like, there is no way. The only space that we feel that we can make progress is when someone is passing out. So they had to take them out and that's the only time you, you make a little bit of progress. Maybe a few meters and it took us from seven o'clock all the way to 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock that I reached out behind the aisle. I took a picture and I sent to the group and then our point of contact learned that we were behind the gate and then he sent um, so we we were still having four afghan units uh we call them zero units uh helping with the evacuation so they are purely tasked to uh with the evacuation and one of them walked outside and um uh and shoot in the ground and one person got shot at in his feet one of the civilian and more people like backed out and kind of more space for us. And I talked to the soldier. I told him like, you can shoot in front of people. And, and, and we already had a casualty. Someone like fell on the ground, like bleeding from his, from his ankle. Uh, but in the same time as I was talking, trying to uh, understand what's happening in, in this Afghan soldier and, uh, and a U.S. Army soldier, I call our name. And, and I said, like, this is us. And then I, I was able to uh, pass my family through the gate. And then I asked the Chibir. He backed out with his family. Uh, so someone went 
found him, he came back and we were able to make inside the gate and that was for me was a very a relief moment because I knew for sure that now my family is in safety. Who was with you? You've mentioned your wife. So my wife, uh, my three sisters, uh, my parents, my mom and dad. What was their sense of relief like? Uh, they were they were more stressed, especially my wife being such a young and uh, first time being in close contact. Uh, she would freeze and scream at some point uh, when she would see a toddler walking from a distance. And she would ask me to go in the crowd, like, don't stay with us. And she would think that they would, and I would tell them, like, I'm in civilian clothes, like, no one would uh, notice that uh, who I am just by looking at me. So, and we were just like with all the crowd, but uh, they were very stressed and um, they were very afraid. And us that we were able to um, pass the gate. And I now want to say it was relief, happy, and like a safe moment. Even we're not uh, anywhere close to getting boarded to any aircraft, we mm -hmm. just like passed a fenced gate. And, uh, and I don't I think, think that's like, to me, that was like a, a safe place. When did you finally leave? Same day. So like, when we passed the gate, we went through like different checking, screening, and uh, multiple steps. And then we got our bracelets and then we walk out and then we, I think we boarded uh, C-17 uh, around like one or two o'clock, I'm not wrong. In the afternoon? In the afternoon. What was your feeling when you stepped onto the ramp of that C-17? So, to me, the moment I had my family inside the gate, that's when I started thinking about my friends and my colleagues and everyone else that left outside. I knew that my family is safe, but I wasn't sure that if I'm leaving, and I wasn't sure that what's going to happen to my friends that they were left behind. So the whole time, my attention was like my thinking, my whole thing was, OK, who is still out there? What we can do? Uh, but in August 16, I, I lost my iPhone. So I basically lost all my contacts, all my point of my communications with my friends, my colleagues. And then and, and I was using my sister phone to just say, connect to uh, evacuation team were helping us. That was the only group that I was uh, part of it, and I didn't have any contacts. But as I was walking to toward the aircraft, I was in one sense happy that my family is in safety and they will be safe. And and in one thing that I was always afraid when made the decision to leave is like we experience what it looks like to live on the Taliban. So it wasn't a surprise and we never bought then to Taliban change, Taliban would do this or do that. We knew that's not going to happen. And to see that my, that I am giving a second chance to my family, because in Afghanistan, I promised them that Afghanistan will be one day free and we will have peace. And that was my all time saying, even the province was failing and the base was failing and they would still ask me and I will tell them we still have a chance because uh, we will make a decision as a country, as a nation, as a government. Uh, but in August um, uh, 15, I couldn't make that claim anymore because we were pretty much abandoned 
by all means from our leadership, Afghan government, Afghan president, Mendef, and uh, Security Council, and the same, my, our relationship with our U.S. partners. Uh, but the moment that uh, came to my mind that I couldn't see my family live under Taliban, and now seeing them walking toward the C-17, because I lived in the States, this was always a second house to me. I knew that they will be having a good life here. So they will have a start. And uh, still, so these three things, friends, family, and the country itself. I want to go back to the full dress jacket. How did that wind up in your suitcase in the first place? Uh, I don't know. I think that I, I really had a few minutes when I, when I received message from my boss that get ready, we're leaving Afghanistan. I pull out my weapons, sat behind my desk, and then the first thing came in mind, like my family. Like I, like in my mind, I told myself, I'm not going to leave with my boss, myself. The only way I want to leave is my family. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I called them, I told them, don't pack anything, I don't need anything, just grab my full dress, my documents, uh, a few my wedding portraits I had in uniform. I said, like, took these things for me, and this is it. And anything that you guys need, pack light, maybe a backpack. But when I showed up to pick them up, this was like around like 8.30, 9 o'clock that night, and like I saw two big suitcases that I had to like grab them like this and then there was a backpack and there was also like a this size um, duffel bag another suitcase like a carry-on size uh, suitcase but uh, when we went to the Kabul airport I told him like you I brought it but situation with this I am the only one had to carry these two because now we are walking I can literally do that so I, I told him, like, you have, like, 10 minutes, go pick what you need. And we were given up on the, on the suitcases. And we couldn't take anything out of those uh, suitcases. And even, like, I had to give up on my, um, on my another backpack. And, um, but we, we ran into situations when the crowd next Taliban, and then we had to leave. So we didn't have to leave our backpacks and everything because we didn't want to get searched and being identified with those uniforms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I came up and told them, I picked my uniform, my documents, and these things. Did you ever think you'd see it again? No. What was getting that news that it had been found? And uh, it, it was unbelievable to me, to be honest. And, um, and that was very, like, a big surprise and shocking news to me because I, I think I'm in, in, in Qatar. Like we arrived, this is like, uh, 19th and, uh, and I'm, I, I see a message on my Instagram. I don't know who messaged me, but someone asked me that, have I left anything behind? <laughs> and then I was about to, so like I left my life and everything behind, but it was very, um, like, uh, my responding was like, is there anything specific I should be worried about? And then like, it's like, is this your full dress? And I say, wow, like, yeah, this is my full dress, but, but how is this possible? And then I uh, explain and I, I read more about how a soldier found it and then like the whole communication. So, mm-hmm. but that was uh, very strange. Like, I don't know, the chances probably one in billion that someone would walk in and pick that thing 
just like I know how crazy the situation was in Kabul. Mm -hmm. From Qatar, what was your route back to the United States? So we stayed for two nights in Qatar and then um, uh, we were selected to be, I want to say the first aircraft, the first group of, I don't know, 200 around that number to uh, go through the initiatives because the whole thing happened so quickly. The State Department, DHS, in the U.S. Army, and everyone is trying to basically come up with a course of action. So everything they're doing is like first time. So and and I learned that we are we are kind of piloting this program. So like we are the first going out and like doing like our, uh, our TSA check and then uh, getting boarded to a commercial aircraft, uh, uh, like basically flying out to DC. And one thing at this moment is like I'm worried because I have a one duffel bag. So in this duffel, duffel bag, I have my uh, some documents um, and also uh, my wedding videotape. And we had to leave it in C-17s. So we left from the front gate, but they told us they're going to bring duffel bags. And I didn't get it. And I reached out back and I asked, I have my duffel bag. I don't have it. And they told us that they will send it uh, like just like the way to do like all these um, uh, uh like airport, like bags, mm -hmm. like stuff. Uh, but we left and we landed in Washington, uh, DC. And then we had to wait for the, I think DHS and, uh, for their processing and everything. So look into our documents and, uh, uh, we waited there. And then the next day we flew following, uh, Washington DC to Fort Bliss, Texas. So we arrived in Fort Bliss, Texas as of August, uh, 21. What happened in Fort Bliss? So we, we showed up and there are more Afghans and then uh, it's like thousands of people are coming and the mayor, the U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Colonel Bonama was briefing us that they were tasked, just asked, and they were told to expect 10,000 Afghans. And now he needs to figure out with his battalion that how he's going to receive and host 10,000 Afghans. And, and, and then like we were helping, uh, the team, me and Shabir and the West Point grad, uh, like kind of giving them what to expect, like how we can help. Like we actually offer them help. And, um, but more Afghans showed up and everyone. And then like our time in, uh, Fort Bliss to me was more reflection time more reaching out back to Afghanistan because there is still evacuation happened. Friends who are trying to help to get out. And then, so that, that was mostly me talking on the phones, talking to someone in Afghanistan and also helping uh, uh, to basically to come up with a plan for our next um, journey in the state. You get to bliss on the 21st. Afghanistan's evacuation ends about a week later. You've seen the pictures of General Donovan getting on the plane. How did that strike you? Um, the, the whole thing was tragic for us. So that was, uh, to me, was a huge failure on our side as an army, as an Afghan government. And, and more tragic to Afghan people, Afghan women, and so many Afghans that their life put into the hands of a group that we witnessed that there is no 
uh, anything tight when it comes to humanity, when it comes to like um, respecting like human. So like we knew that uh, that Afghans are put in jeopardy, and, and and another thing that to me was like this is the beginning of a, a huge problems in the region. So like me thinking that the so I was one of the person that I always thought that U.S. actually withdrew from Afghanistan in 2016 because the mission changed from combat. Like as of 2016, there was no U.S. troops in combat mission in Afghanistan. And the number dropped from 97 to 8,000 in just with advising and training mission. Mm-hmm. And I was the one telling Afghan soldiers that we really not depending on the U.S. combat forces to fight with us. We can fight. Uh, and I always advocating that. I was telling that this is our fight and we are fighting and we are proving it so there is no U.S. soldiers fighting with us anywhere uh, in any combat missions across Afghanistan. And and that uh, has picture a symbolic move to me was not about U.S. leaving Afghanistan in terms of combat, it was much more in terms of abandoning the region and like a, like expecting future problems and chaos mm-hmm. and that already is happening. That's like a recalibrating the region because there are countries that we built relationship, for example, India, things that they've been betrayed in terms of their democracy, in terms of promoting and regional stability. And there are countries like Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China, they think that they are, they actually are in a, in a better side, better position, but by having, uh, the U, to make the U.S. to leave the region. So, yeah. So I was looking both like internally Afghanistan and then like big picture and both were tragic. Mm-hmm. Have you had contact back with Afghanistan with your yes. former soldiers? Yes, uh, that's one way that we are trying to get over and like combating this um, uh, psychological effect by reaching out and talking and engaging back with their family and friends in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I intentionally encourage my family. They speak all day, every day with friends and families in Afghanistan. And um, and I talk to my friends. We try to find options, like solutions, ways if they are in Afghanistan, making sure that they are safe. If they're leaving Afghanistan, making sure that they are, are safe. Connecting them to resources that they need and uh, talking to them. And uh, this is like helping us um, um, uh, e- e- either way. Like it helps us to stay engaged with them, talk to them. And it helps them to just like uh, still keep that um, um, uh, positivity for the moment. There's been discussion that former Afghan government officials, soldiers, uh, have been targeted. Have you heard anything about that from from your friends, your former soldiers? Yes. Uh, so even uh, I read that the numbers are much higher than what came on the news. So the problem is that um, when you have uh, like censorship, no media coverage, and to us, like Taliban are thugs. It's like they're independent. So a Taliban fighter, he is like, he can do anything he wants. Mm-hmm. And we already knew that over 1,500 uh, Afghans, farmer security and locals were killed in, in, in Kandahar. So in Kandahar, that was a very beginning stage. 
but it wasn't making the news and um, and uh, and we seen videos of our friends videos of afghan security forces being executed mm -hmm. so that report to us to me was it was a report but it was way late and it was not even uh, reflecting the the actual uh, the war crime and the violence and uh, the reality of the ground. Nikib, thank you. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>